Let's be in 2 Peter. We're going to be in 2 Peter this evening, and uh, we're picking up where we left off. We'll be picking up in 2 Peter chapter 2, right where we left off uh, in that passage, beginning in verse 10 of the passage. Last time we looked at verses 1 through 10, and this time we're going to try to uh, pick up right there. Let me get myself a little bit more space. There you go. Got to make sure I got enough string there to, to carry out. 2 Peter. 2 Peter. It's been neat to be in 2 Peter. For one, I think, interesting reason. 2 Peter, in my estimation, is one of the most neglected books in the entire Bible, not just in the, in the New Testament alone, but really in the entire Bible. Uh, there just isn't a lot of, of time spent, I would say, studying out 2 Peter. There's a lot of time studying out James. People love the book of James. We studied out the book of James. There's a lot of time spent in the Gospels. We're in the Gospels right now. Even, even 1 John, and, and there's a, an interesting fascination, sometimes unhealthily, with Revelation. But when it comes to 2 Peter, and people were to press you and say, what is 2 Peter all about? I think you might, even before this series, and hopefully not after it, be kind of stumped as to what is the theme of this book, in part because there's not a lot of time spent in our churches in this book. Just kind of a unique thing. Uh, I don't know if you have a Bible that you uh, like to use, and you maybe you've kept intact for a long time, maybe you even got it rebound, and, and uh, that's pretty neat, and maybe you've uh, taken time to mark out notes at different times. People have preached from different passages, and you come to discover there are certain verses that preachers like to come back to, and there are certain ones they just frankly avoid. And Second Peter may just be one of those, if you have a Bible like that, you've had a long time, may be one of those that just isn't often cracked. And I think that may be because of the theme that's kind of an interesting and difficult, a bit of a difficult theme to address all the way through the book. And the theme really rings out with the word warning. That's, that's Peter's message. Peter is seeking to issue to his listeners a warning. And specifically, his warning is about what? False teachers. And these false teachers have introduced destructive heresies. And this false teaching is pervasive in the historical context that Peter was writing. Yet we discover with sadness that this kind of heretical teaching uh, that Peter references is not all that uncommon even in our own present context. There are two ways we could look at it as we ask the question, what is false teaching? And just by way of review, there are two things that certainly stand out in Second Peter that if you do a, just a quick evaluation of teachings in this world, you come to discover that may be true. The first of which is that false teaching is known for its skepticism. Skeptical about, for example, the return of Jesus Skeptical, certainly, in Second Peter about God's judgment. Skeptical about the veracity of biblical truth. Just frank, rank skepticism. And the other thing that's rampant that we'll see in the text before us in, in false teaching is that false teaching is known for its immorality. There is a moral laxity, and immorality is inevitably following skepticism. If you are going to begin to be skeptical about truth, if you are going to begin to be able to define your own truth, it's not too far of a step later that you'll be able to define what is moral and what is immoral according to however you feel. And so false teaching is known for its skepticism, 
which inevitably leads to its immorality. This Peter starts chapter 2. He is starting this in a certain way. Let's go back before we read the text. Again, this is chapter 2 that we've been in before, and Peter begins it by saying, false teachers arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. This is Peter's warning. This is how he's begun this chapter. This is the passage we've already looked at. And Peter is, is doing this because of a specific reason. It's really meant to be an encouragement to his readers. So that's kind of a weird way to look at it, but why would you say, if, if you were with us last week, why, why is this an encouragement to his readers, even though it's a discouraging topic? Why is this encouraging in the midst of discouraging news? Because they know the truth. Because they know the truth, and what other reason? They know what to expect. Ultimately, we know who's in control. God is sovereignly in control. Look at verse 9 to highlight that. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You know the truth. You know what to expect. Yes, this is a sobering reality. Yes, there are false teachers. But you can be encouraged. And before we read the text, I want you to acknowledge that we don't know all the details of what Peter ha is addressing within the historical context. Peter doesn't go into and wax eloquent about the specific details of all of their false teaching and all of their heresy. Peter is writing under express circumstances, which would be understood by those who first read it. But while we may not know the specific details of the issues he addresses, the general emphasis of what he is getting at is very clear and it is very sobering. As we read, I want you to notice the terminology. We're going to begin our reading in verse 10, and then we'll come backwards to it. But as we read, I want you to notice the terminology, really the strong terminology with which Peter describes false teachers. Notice these terminologies. He makes up our reading, beginning in verse uh, 10. It says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas the angels, thought greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, and here's the first one I want you to notice, what they're like. They are like uh, irrational, Peter says, these, these people, these false teachers, are like irrational, irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Here's another one I want you to notice, what they're described as. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast on you, they, he says, have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Here's an exclamation point. Accursed children. That's kind of how he thinks of them. That's what they are. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved again from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
These are, notice some other descriptions about them, waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves, and here's another description, are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered them. For what the proverb says has happened to them. The dog, there's another description of them, returns to his own vomit. And, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. False teachers have some interesting adjectives, <laughs> don't they? Here are their descriptions. They are pigs in reverse order. They are dogs. They are slaves of corruption, mists driven by the storm, waterless springs. They are accursed children. They are blots and blemishes. They are irrational animals. What we have here is Peter's violent and colorfully expressed tirade, if you will. Peter holds no punish punches. If you're with us when we study the book of James, we often noted that James was not afraid to step on a few toes. And if James is not afraid to step on a few toes, Peter is not afraid to wield a sledgehammer. <laughs> Peter is coming in boldly. Now, before we even exegete the text together, when you read this, they are strong. And you may find yourself recoiling at points as to what is going on. Because rarely, if ever, do we have someone preach in the pulpit and describe other people this way. Imagine that. Does Peter have to be so graphic with these words? Does Peter have to be so forceful? Does Peter have to be so condemning? I think an illustration is helpful in this regard if you're a parent. If you think of yourself as a parent for a moment, and you come to discover that there are evil men in and amongst your children that are drawing them away and introducing your children to filthy practices, there is no parent or grandparent, for that matter, that does not understand the rightful emotion arising in your spirit towards those that are defiling your children. You understand what I'm saying? Peter is upset. Is Peter angry? Yes, Peter's, Peter's a little bit angry. You, you have to respond to these that are hurting your children. If, if you're a parent in that situation, what do you do? Well, you need to respond immediately, don't you? You're not going to wait around. And you need to respond forcefully, do you not? That's Peter. This is the responsibility, by the way, that God gives to shepherds of sheep. He says that there will be wolves that will come in amongst you. And he tells the shepherds to be strong, to drive out wolves from the sheep. Why? Well, as we look at this passage now, the slander of these individuals, the slander of these false teachers, knows no limits. Look at verse 12. Their, their blasphemy 
is literally described as being unconstrained. Look what it says in verse 12, verse 12 where it says, there, but these, Peter says, these like uncon- irrational, uncontrolled animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, they're doing something, they are, and he says they are, blaspheming. They are so out in their denial of God that they are beyond the realm of comprehension. This is not just, you know, mere saying one thing and arguing another. This is a total and complete rejection of truth. This is an unwillingness to have even, we could say, a healthy dialogue. There is, there is this irrationality to them. And as we've already noted, and we circled, they are irrational animals. And I want you to notice exactly what Peter is referring to when he says they are irrational animals. What he's saying here is that they are dominated, they are dominated by lusts. Some have likened this to a, 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 an animal with rabies, if you will. Just totally out of control. Their passions have been given free reign with the result that they behave like animals. And what they have affected, what is most affected by them, are two, two levels of mankind. Their, their, their brain, you could say, is affected, and their spirit is affected. That's what's totally atrophied. The mental and spiritual sides of their humanity have suffered atrophy. Their brains and their spirits are moved beyond the realm of thought into the realm of impulse. That's what they're going after. And verse 11, by the way, go back. It says, verse 11, if you want to highlight verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in my and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. What what? What, what is this about angels? Well, what Peter is drawing out is that the angels exercise a restraint. There's an angelic restraint about the angels. You could say there's a maturity there that the angels have. And they choose to have this rational restraint. These people have no restraint. There, there is nothing too sacred to be stomped on, There is no line that has been drawn that cannot be removed. There is no topic that can make them blush anymore. They are beyond the pale. They choose to be creatures of instinct. They neglect rational thought. They proceed purely on the basis of sexual and sensual indulgence. That's what Peter is drawing at. Pretty strong. In verse 13, in the end, they are like beasts, by the way, he says, creatures of instinct, just like beasts, they are born. Uh, I'll highlight it that. Just, just like creatures that are out of control, uh, uh, an animal possessed with rabies, they are born to be caught and destroyed. What, what do you do if you see an animal with rabies in your backyard? You put it down, right? As one person said, they, they suffer the consequences of lead poisoning. You know what I mean? That's what's going to happen to these that's, that is what Peter is drawing at. William Barclay, in his helpful commentary, puts it this way, such an individual may enjoy pleasure for a while, but in the end he ruins his health, wrecks his constitution, destroys his mind and character, and begins his experience of hell while he is still on earth. End quote. 
What are we driving at? Here's what we're driving at. One of the things a false teacher would say is this, and this is a false thing that's coming all the way back from the Garden of Eden from Satan. You can, you can do this or that, whatever the sin may be, and it will not affect your personhood. Right? That's pretty much what Satan is drawing at. You, you, can, you can live for the now, and it will not affect the later. But Peter is saying it absolutely will. It will destroy you. You cannot so separate the, the spirit and the body, if you will. You are a person. What you do affects you, the whole you. You can't think a thought and think it won't affect the outside man either. Right? Junk in, junk out kind of a principle. But these people have so consumed themselves with these matters, even matters about which about which matters, they are actually, and I want you to notice the word, that, that they are actually, about these matters, Peter says they are ignorant. What is he referring to when he says that about which matters they are ignorant? What do you think he's talking about? What is one thing that a false teacher, if they're going to grab a crowd and whip up a crowd together with them, what is one thing that is probably pretty obvious about them, and that is this, they claim or parade themselves as having something you don't have. And they're going to give it to you if you can just follow their method. And so they're going to be full of, as we mentioned in the beginning of chapter 2, full of hot air. <laughs> so they parade themselves about things that they're actually totally ignorant about. Now in light of our message even Sunday evening, why are they ignorant of these things? What do they not have that they must have to understand truth? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And specifically, what do we call that work of the Holy Spirit? Illumination. Illumination. These are not believers that we're talking about here. They are ignorant. By the way, in passing, before we move further, our cultural mindset has come to the conclusion that no one is justified in speaking about others the way Peter does in this passage. Our cultural mindset is understood, or they think, that nobody is allowed to say such things. And anyone who would pronounce such judgments must be disengaged from their senses, is basically our cultural mindset. And this is one of the greatest challenges I think we are going to face in the, the current 21st century climate. Because you'll hear phrases like, well, you say this is wrong, and you're really strong on it. You must be bigoted. That's the idea. Or you people are this or that. You fill in the blank. Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you want people to like you in the immediacy and despise you in eternity? Or would you rather they despise you now for your straightforwardness from Scripture and recognize with you that they can rejoice in eternity. If you have your Bibles, just look, look in for a moment in Luke 16. In Luke 16, you have this window into eternity, and this is just a quick aside. But you have the rich man and Lazarus, remember? By the way, this is a true story, not a parable. How do I know that this is a true story in Luke 16? They names Lazarus. You're good Bible students. So Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. That's a different discussion for a different time, right? Is that heaven? Is that not? We'll talk about that at a different time. That's a different one we can go through. 
But we do know the one is tormented in hell. The rich man is tormented in hell. And it lists his torments. What are some of his torments? Thirst? What are some of his other torments? Heat? (laughs) Fire? But there's one that we often forget. Darkness, certainly. He's alone. His memory of his relatives. He is fully conscious of the, the opportunities he had on earth to not go to where he is right now. He is fully conscious of that, of, that, of that truth. In fact, he is so fully conscious of that truth that aside from just asking Abraham to send a drip of water to cool his tongue, what is his other request? Send Lazarus down that they may tell his brothers. And what does, Lazarus say, or does Abraham say? To that request. Even if I did, they wouldn't believe him. In fact, he goes further and says, basically, to use the Caleb paraphrase here, <laughs> they already have all of the information they need to not get to this point. Here's something that I think we fail to realize. One of the greatest torments in hell is not physical, although that will be tormented. We're listed here in Luke 16, the torments of hell, One of them is memories of opportunities to have not actually gone here. Think about that for a moment. And come back to my questions from this text. Would you rather someone like you in the immediacy and despise you for all eternity? Or would you rather that they despise you for your scriptural straightforwardness that they may rejoice with you in eternity? Do you have the courage to do as Peter does here and say, no, we can't go that far. But the false teachers are doing all this without shame. And by the way, the loss of shame in our contemporary culture is palpably undeniable. I I, I don't even know if I could use illustrations of what happened at our White House just this week. But they had drag queens performing for children at our White House, if you didn't know that. That's just beyond the pale. They don't even care anymore. They're very open about what's going on. Verse 14, it says this. This is, what they're, this is describing exactly that kind of thing. Come down. They have, it says, eyes full of adultery. They are insatiable for sin. This word insatiable literally means they are out of control. They can't stop themselves. You give them an inch, you say they take a mile, but it's more than that. They're insatiable for that. There is no end to their desire for evil. Verse 14, here's who they're going after, and that's why I use that illustration of even our White House and parading drag queens in front of children. Notice who they entice. They entice unsteady souls. I don't know if there's a more unsteady soul than a child, do you? This is is what they're going after. They are always on the lookout for those who are susceptible to their dirty deeds. If they can get you to think like they can, wonderful. Can Can you understand better then why Peter calls them this? Accursed children? 
Is there a worse person than the person who would go after those who are most vulnerable? And yet that's exactly who they target. Does that shake you up a little bit? Just, just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it, it's troubling. They are, the curse of God is upon them. Now here's the question. How in the world did they get to that point? They just said one step at a time, and that's exactly right. Notice the next verse. This is how they came, forsaking the right way. Does this make you a little bit think of Pilgrim's Progress, by the way? Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? They got his journey. And it wasn't as if there was like an immediate nosedive here. And the thing that should absolutely, by the way, before we move any further, the thing that should stand out about 2 Peter is this. The thing that needs to stand out in your reading at this point is who this book is for and who this book is not for. This book is not written for false teachers. Who is this book written for? Believers. It's written for me if you're a believer. Notice the end of this book is a parallel to what we have in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, again, we have all these descriptions, but I want you to particularly notice in chapter 2, verse, verse 14 or 13, this description that they are blots and blemishes. Did you see that there? And I want you to stay in the book of 2 Peter and come, it's not a very long book, come with me to chapter 3, verse 14. Verse 14, chapter 3 Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by them without spot or blemish. Who is this book written for? It's written for believers. What is Peter encouraging us to do? Stay pure. Don't don't be this, right? Don't be this. And notice the promises of the Bible, by the way, all those wonderful promises that we love to talk about, all those promises are real, but so too are the warnings. You don't just nosedive, as Nancy already noted. You don't just nosedive into error. This error is one through gradual degrees. After all, that's exactly what's being noted when he says they have gone astray. And the idea is this gradual gradual, uh, nature to what they're doing. It's not like overnight, they went about this idea that they were going to just nosedive there. And they, it says in verse 15, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. This is the one who seduced the Israelites to sin with the Moabite women. Remember this story? Well, if you don't, you can see the next verse. They were rebuked for his own transgression I love this. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice. Just as an aside, if you ever think you're really all worth all that much, just remember that one of the greatest preachers in the Bible was a donkey. Right? Error is always a big deal to God, is the point. Error is always a big deal. It's such a big deal that God will use miraculous means to stop them. But let me ask you these questions as we look at verse 17. What are their characteristics? What are the characteristics of these false teachers? And really, there are, there are two things that should stand out. Number one, the characteristics are that they are empty. 
They are empty. They are, as we noted here, they are waterless springs. They are empty. And they are useless. They are useless. Again, noting these waterless springs about them. And not only that, they are unsteady. They are unsteady, mist, driven by the storm. They don't have settled principles or convictions. Alistair Begg put it this way, you have only to visit a second-hand bookshop with its piles of unsellable rubbish, once the latest thing in theological audacity, to see the sheer force of this. You ever thought about that? Every generation throws its nonsense at the fan from a theological perspective. And then all the churchmen get all riled up and every preacher's got to preach about the latest craze that's just weird. Maybe you can think of some of these weird crazes. You ever think about it? I remember um, Japheth's prayer, was it, back in the day? There was a book about it that was kind of weird. And uh, The Harbinger was another one that was kind of weird. And all these kind of weird things that just kind of pop up and then everybody has to recognize that they're wrong. And then they go away. And they just kind of get stashed in the unsaleable shelves of the bookstore somewhere. And then someone else, something else pops up, something else weird. I cannot predict to you tonight what the next weird thing is going to be. <laughs> I can tell you it will be weird. And it will come up. So what do we do to prepare ourselves for all of that theological garbage that they just throw at the fan to see what will stick in the church? Stay in the Word. And who's our spotlight to stay in the Word? The Holy Spirit is going to point us back to the Word. So don't be alarmed when more stuff gets thrown at the fan. But don't be like them either. Look at verse 17. For their gloom, verse 17, of utter darkness, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. What is that a reference to? What's that a reference to? Hell. They've got a ticket to hell, if you will. They have simply cast unhelpful shadows now but their unhelpful shadows now are nothing compared to the darkness to come. Verse 18, notice that they are speaking in loud boasts of folly. Well, you notice this word because I thought it was kind of funny. If you want to come over here with me to the text here. The, the, this loud boast, these speakings of these loud verse is this word here, hyperonka is the word. It kind of sounds like tonka truck. That's why I brought it to your attention, right? Hyperonka. What is these loud voices? Well, what's a Tonka truck to a kid? It's big. It's a big truck, right? Right? I don't think Tonka truck got their name from Hyperonka, but that's certainly the idea. These big, boisterous volume, you know, everything. Their words appear to be tremendous. But, as our ESV says, they are full of, and, and our ESV uses the idea that they are, they are full of folly, is how the ESV uses it. And you can notice over here, probably a better word or way, way to use it is the word vanity. What is vanity communicating? Meaningless. Emptiness. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. By the way, 
We don't know the details, but the chances are that they are teaching some kind of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught a separation of the soul and body. It taught God only cared about the soul, so you can do whatever you want with your body. This is kind of this emptiness. But the Bible says we are a unity. Verse 19, I want you to come down to verse 19. They promise, here's, here's their empty words, they, they promise freedom, but themselves are slaves of corruption. They, they promise the thing that they themselves do not have. I, I, I saw one commentator liken them to drug dealers. <laughs> they, they are promising the release from something in this world while they themselves are addicted to the thing that they are selling. It's exactly who they are. They are promising something that they are addicted to. They seek a wonderful freeing experience, but they themselves are slaves. They are slaves to something. Verse 20, have, having put out by God, you are not put out to do on a pathway of your own choosing. For if, after they had escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, with the last state has become far worse than the first. And here we go, once again, I have, you, gotta, you almost have to put a question mark there. <laughs> what is Peter talking about? Let's pause for just a moment, because we can do this on Wednesday night. For if, it says, after they had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, were they saved? And then it says, they are now, it says, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become far worse than the first. So were they, were they somehow saved up here, and lost their salvation down here? Does the Bible teach that we lose our salvation? No. So what is this verse talking about? They have the knowledge. They know it, but they don't know That's exactly right. Another, she said they have the knowledge, but they don't know it. There's a difference between the two. Absolutely. And she said over here, they're like the shallow ground that received the seed. It might have sprouted up, and then it withered away. Right? It, is, it, is a, it has appeared externally that they were the real deal. But something somewhere twisted them and wore out over the holy living. What they discovered is it's pretty easy to come in and, and put on the sanctified t-shirt, if you will. But somewhere along the line there was a war and they had to decide either I am really converted and actually get saved or I'm just going to turn back to what I, what I already did. And the reason we can come to that conclusion, that's exactly what Peter is saying, is because what he says in the very next verse, look what he says, for it would have been far better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And this, this right here, this, this holy commandment that Peter refers to, I'm going to Circle that again for you. That didn't really do a good job. This, this holy commandment, that's not working for me, this holy commandment, this right here that Peter is referring to, this is the gospel message. Here, here's what Peter is saying. It would have been better not to have known the gospel than to have known it and to have turned their backs on it. Can you think of a story we just looked at that gives an illustration of that? Luke chapter 16. 
And again, verse 22 is a horrible picture of a scavenging dog eating his own vomit and a pig wallowing in his own mud, revolting pictures of these brute beasts. That's who these people are. They are dogs that return to their own vomit. They didn't didn't change who they were. They may have wormed their way into the assembly, but they've always been dogs. And now they're just returning to their own vomit. Eventually it's going to be proven who they are. They've always been pigs. Eventually they're going to return to their own mud. But it's always best to focus on what we know than what we don't know. Because there's certainly a lot of things we don't know. Number one, as I've already mentioned, we don't know exactly the false teaching that Peter is addressing. We can speculate, as I already just did with Gnosticism. It's possible. We don't exactly know. Even in current contexts, we can't be assured or know always false teachers. We can, to some degree, but not immediately, certainly. They've got to worm their way in immediately, you know, somehow. So it's not like they come into your assembly wearing a hat that says, I'm a false teacher or something like that. So somehow there's a, there's a way that they're worming in. So there's certainly, a, when it comes to false teachers, there's certainly a lot we don't know. We need to focus on what we do know. Here's what we know. The ground of our salvation is what? What is the foundation and the ground of our salvation? The gospel, which is what? Christ died for our sins and he rose again. That is the ground. Did that, does that change? Praise the Lord, it is not going to change. Here's something else we are fully aware of. Within the visible church, within the visible church, there will always be what? There will always be false teachers. Always. It's hard to tell the real from the fake. Even the mo- for the most part, we can leave those determinations to Christ, but blatant pleasing of self is the third thing we know. How can I know someone is a false teacher? The blatant pursuit of self-ambition is never from Christ. That's generic. The blatant pursuit of self-ambition is never from Christ. What do you do if someone's in your assembly blatantly pursuing self in whatever merits that may be, but still claims to be a part of your assembly and a believer. What do you do for the protection of your family? What do you do? You call them out, you confront them, and if they persist, what do you do? You remove them from your assembly. Why so severe? Well, to put it in the graphic illustrations that Peter now uses, because you don't want people to come to church and watch dogs lapping up their vomit in the hallways. That's, that's why. If the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, and it is not passionate about truth, then we aren't a church anymore. Now, you don't hear 2 Peter chapter 2 all that frequently, and it's not exactly the most fun passage to go through. But it is compelling to think that there are those who are so out of control that they should be shown a distinct difference between those who are out of control 
and those who are spirit-controlled. And that's the fourth thing that we know. We know that truth is spirit-controlled. We must be people that are controlled by the spirit. Questions, comments as we go now. Yes? Yes. Yeah, I, I would say, she asked, don't, don't you think a lot of people start off good and, and mean well? Well, certainly it is true that a lot of people mean well. But it is also true that the Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. So you can do a lot of quote-unquote good, but no good will save you, right? <coughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Christians are notoriously naive when it comes to these things. We don't recognize these things are going on really quickly. And, and Peter is drawing off our naivete and basically saying there's a reality we need to be warned about. There's no glorification of the Lord. There is no glorification of the Lord. There's a lot of glorification of self. Unfortunately, there's a lot of glorification of self tied back as if the Lord is part of it. And that's where it becomes very dangerous. Rebecca? Yeah. I, love certainly believes no evil, um, but love is also not naive. Uh, we, we, the Bible does continue to tell us that we are to, be, we are to know them by their fruit. I've heard often people say, well, God knows the heart. That's exactly the point. <laughs> the passage is basically saying we can't know your heart, so the only thing we can observe is your fruit. That's all we have to go off of. Steve? Uh, I just want to say I just love how the Holy Spirit works. And um, so I have a gentleman, a friend of mine, who wrote a book, and he had some kind of podcast, and he wanted me to listen to it and give him some feedback today. And he was a friend of mine, and I haven't responded to him yet. And then I hear this message, and it's almost like <laughs> my feedback would be like to send him this message and tell him to listen to it. Yeah. That's great. Because it was like a, it was a lot of fault. It was just a lot of soul. Um, self-centered, you know, feel-good stuff, and I'm like, you know, if you think that's the Lord, then you're way out there. Yeah, Peter, or Steve was just to repeat, was just saying, he, he was listening to something some of his friends sent. This message really helped him in that regard. Yes, Paul? The pursuit of the purity of the church is of primary importance. That's right. The pursuit of the purity of the church is of primary importance. Absolutely. Marilyn? Uh, verse 21, uh, someone that does not believe in eternal security would use this verse. That's exactly true. Verse 21 is a verse that is often used by those who do not believe in eternal security. How would you dispute that? How I would dispute that is within that the context. right? If you can take that verse just right there and, and just, I'm going to use verse 21 as my proof text for saying that there's no such thing as eternal security. And yet the context suggests otherwise, especially the verse to follow. Because the verse to follow clearly indicates that these people are dogs and pigs. That's who they've always been. This now running away from the truth only demonstrates that they are dogs and pigs. So, and then verse 21, before that, it says if it had been better if they had never had known the way of righteousness, then knowing it, turn their back on it. So they are those that have turned their back on the truth. 
The, the next two verses suggest that this is not talking about eternal security and the lack of it, though those who would be against eternal security would certainly use that for that. Yes, Bob? Uh, you made reference to it earlier, but it looks like to me these cats in Second Peter have been reincarnated <laughs> in our society today. Yeah. But per, it, it, very true. Uh, he said these cats in Second Peter have been reincarnated today. Though I guess Peter would say these cat, these dogs and pigs have been reincarnated. <laughs> but absolutely, and and with a viciousness, I would say. Jesus has the demons into the pigs, and the pigs went out and sound themselves. Well, demons are immortal, so they they have to go somewhere. Yeah. I think we're seeing them here today. Yeah, demon activity never stopped, and, and false teaching is certainly, I could, you could say, demonic. False teaching has a demonic edge to it, if, if for any reason. It's the denial of Christ. So, yes. Uh, interestingly enough, false teachers do something demons don't do. False teachers deny Christ. Demons never do. <laughs> they, they know who he is. They're not denying that. Pastor Paul? Yeah, self-ambition. False teachers blatantly pursue self-ambition, which is that idea of these, these uh, irrational animals and creatures of instinct, just going after whatever feels good for the moment. All right, these are questions about Second Peter. If you've been with us, we've been going through the Holy Spirit, which is a mouthful. And uh, we've been going it over Sunday night. We've also covered it in this series. After all, at the end of chapter 1, it says about the Holy Spirit, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And one thing we noted last Sunday evening is the, the clear connectedness of the Word of God and the Spirit's work. You cannot remove one from the other. If you want to hear the Holy Spirit speak, we've said often in that series, listen to him through the word of God. Uh, and I'm sure that we, we've covered in just three messages a lot of material. Because I do fear that the, the, the teachings regarding the Holy Spirit are in our day and age perhaps one of the most misunderstood in the church age. And so I, I wanted to give an opportunity to even ask questions regarding the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's a big topic. We've only ever covered it so far in three messages and in this time together on Wednesday night. But are there questions in regard to the Holy Spirit as well? Surely I didn't answer everybody's questions. Adam? Okay, so I have several verses that we found relating to the Holy Spirit. Okay. Give me one <laughs> first. Yeah, yeah. said he has a verse on the Holy Spirit that he found that he's going to ask a question about. You want us to give you a chance to get to it? Or do you got, oh, you got it, okay. Yes. 
Yes. Yes. So you're talking about the, the gifts listed in Second Corinthians, right? First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter four, if you want to go there in your Bibles. First Corinthians chapter four, yep. First Peter. There's also a passage on those, okay? So go to First Peter if you want to in your passage. So you are, he's asking, if there's gifts that were given, spiritual gifts, particularly sign gifts is what you're talking about, that were given, why do we, they have them then, and if, you're, if I'm saying, as I've said, that they don't anymore, then are there parts of the Bible that don't apply to us anymore? So what you're referring to, and I'll put it on the screen, is something called sign gifts, sign gifts, or spectacular gifts, sometimes referred to as miraculous gifts, special gifts, charismatic gifts, and as Adam already noted, I do believe that they ceased. Let me give you several reasons, and we'll outline them in a different time. But number one, sign gifts or miraculous gifts were closely associated with and attested to newly revealed truth. So newly revealed truth was given to, the God, to God's men. The prophets in the Old Testament are a perfect example of that. In the New Testament as well, and these gifts were meant to authenticate both God's message and God's messenger. They can say, thus saith the Lord, and then you could see it, right? This is why when Jesus performed miracles, many have asked, as we've gone through the book of Mark, why didn't he just heal everybody? He had the power to do that. Why did Jesus only choose to heal some? And the answer is for the, the purpose for which he was performing those miracles. Those miracles were to authenticate the truth of his message. Jesus came primarily as a preacher of truth, not as a miracle worker. His miracles authenticated his message. The same is true for the New Testament writers. They performed these miracles to attest to biblical truth. All right, so that's number one. And number two, in 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to go there, that's what I thought you were referencing. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul clearly states something. He says that in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, that, that when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will cease. All right. I have some questions. All right. I'll put it on the screen because I don't have 1 Corinthians on the screen. But that which is perfect is come. When that which is perfect is come, that which is in part, in part, will cease. And you may have other translations that say it with different words, but they make the same point. So we have, we have two questions, Adam, and others that have asked the same question. We have to discover, first of all, what is that which is perfect, and what is that which is part? Okay, so what is that which is perfect? So, actually, this is not a reference to Jesus, though I heard that said often. This, this word perfect could also be translated total. They say, when that which is total is come, that which is in part will cease. What is total? The Bible, but specifically, 
something that in Corinthian, in Corinth, they didn't yet have in total. So we have 1 Corinthians, as that is written. What other books did they not yet have? <laughs> Second Corinthians. <laughs> Uh, all the other ones after it, right? It, depending on the order, all right, I understand that. But they didn't have all of the Bible. When he says that which is total, he's referring to specifically what we often call the canon of Scripture. How many of you have heard of the canon of Scripture? Okay. So that which is perfect has come. That which is perfect refers to the total knowledge of truth. Now, keep that in mind, that which is total. And keep that in mind, which is per, part. Tongues, there, there, are, there are several spiritual gifts. Remember what they are? They are tongues, prophecy. Anybody know what the other one is? This is the easiest one. Miracles, okay? Tongues are noticeably absent from every single New Testament book except Acts and 1 Corinthians. So in Acts, what was happening in Acts? The church is starting. Why do they need tongues when the church is starting? They spread the gospel. It authenticates the message of this church. That's Acts. Why does it need to be referenced in 1 Corinthians? <laughs> Paul is now instructing them as to why this is ending. This is going to go away. He's explaining that. And clearly... The apostles did not view any of these miraculous gifts as something ongoing importance. If they had viewed it as something of ongoing importance, they would have addressed it as they did other matters of sanctification. Now that's another reason. So what is that which in part that will cease? That's all of those gifts, specifically the miraculous gifts. Now, that's one side. Here's the other side to answer some other questions. The temporary charismatic phenomena simply does not align itself with tongues and miracles in Scripture. It just, they, don't, they don't align at all. So, for example, miracles. The purpose of miracles always and only, both in the old and the new, and certainly in true in the ministry of Jesus, always and only was meant to authenticate the messenger. That's it. The messenger was going to give new revelation, and a miracle authenticated that revelation. That is the only use of miracles we see in the Bible. We don't see it anywhere else. Is that true of miracles today as you see them? Certainly not. Tongues. In Scripture, tongues are only and only ever humanly understood foreign languages that were formerly not able to be spoken by the person now speaking them. So when the day of Pentecost come and Peter goes out and preaches the gospel clearly to those that were round about, and they heard him preaching, they didn't hear angelic speech. They actually heard in their language what he was saying, though he was communicating in a language that he had not formerly spoken. That is the only usage we have as tongues in Scripture. We don't have angelic babble in Scripture at all, for that matter. And what about prophecy? Well, this one's easy. Biblical prophecy is infallible. Anybody know what happens to a prophet that says something and it proves to be wrong in the Old Testament? Now, why did they get stoned? Because that is what happened to them. Why do you think they got stoned? They're proclaiming that they're coming from God, and it wasn't from God. 
So what we see as the phenomena today doesn't. And finally, the teaching of continuationism, that these gifts continue because of their purpose. So the purpose of miracles, the purpose of prophecy, and the purpose of tongues. If we say that those con gifts continue, we must also then say logically that revelation continues. What is revelation? Scriptures. Anything that comes from God, specifically straight from God, is revelation. Do we, are we willing to say that God's revelation continues? And I would say no. God's scripture is closed. There is no new revelation. In fact, Peter says we have everything we need in scripture for life and godliness. So if we are willing to say that these gifts continue, we have to also logically say that revelation continues. Is that a long answer to your question? <laughs> okay. Great. Any other questions? Those are good. That's why we took time. Yes, Tabitha. Um, connection to the Holy Spirit, is there anything biblically that says you are not, are not connected before you're saved? Like a child, do they have a connection, etc.? Yeah. So there's an effectual calling of the Lord, I believe, that would be true of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit's purpose is. is he's going to call, he's going to convict of sin to bring someone to Christ. But if someone never repents of those sins and calls out to Christ, they are not saved regardless of their age. Now, there is still in Scripture, and I do believe this, an age of understanding. And we, we learn about that, for example, in... Um, uh, when, when the, I'm trying, I'm trying to think, uh, Jonah, the whale, and he says, I'm not going to destroy the Ninevites, and Bible says, because I want to see repentance, because there's all these people, and also these hundreds of thousands that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. And that's referring to those that have, a, a, I believe, an, a, an, a lack of understanding, and, and who can't discern between their right hand and their left hand, if not infants, and, and maybe even special needs folks. These are those that have this inability to understand conscientiously what is right and what is wrong, even what is left and what is right. And so there is an age of understanding. We also understand that David does the same thing. Remember when David's son or child dies, that was he had with Bathsheba, and they come in and say, why aren't you grieving anymore? And he says, I'm not grieving anymore because I can't, I, he can't come back to me, but I will go one day to him. This is this infant. So... I do believe infants, if they were to die, before an age of understanding, and, and perhaps even a mentally handicapped adult or a child that cannot understand conscientiously right and wrong, I believe the Lord that providentially allows those into heaven. I believe that that is absolutely a biblical merit. But once we come to a point where there's a conscientious understanding of right and wrong, and we choose to continue to go wrong, even though, especially if we have a knowledgeable base and the Spirit is calling us and saying, this is right, and you are wrong, you need to come to God, and we still, we still hold out and say, I'm not going to go that way, and we were to die still saying no to the Spirit's call to come and trust in Christ, that would be what we would say is damnable, right? You would go, does that make sense? These are great. Any other questions? That's why we did this. This is Stump the Chump on Wednesday night. <laughs> <laughs> Any others? About the spirit. Rebecca, I think I saw you cut right in with Adam before. I was just wondering, I, I wanted to hear from some of these uh, sermons 
Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I, I believe that there are, right? I believe that the Holy Spirit does, she asks, are, well, I know the Lord, Holy Spirit's not speaking to me in some audible voice, but does the Holy Spirit nudge me to truth? And the answer to that is obvious, yes, right? And, and, and that all comes down to truth, though. And, and truth is already revealed revelation, okay? So does the Holy Spirit tell me, you should go this way and, and blaze some new trail? I don't think we can so confidently say that. But what we can say is, this is true. Now, this comes to matters of, and I, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, because it comes to matters of, this will be our final discussion. H- how can I know then which way to go? Right? How, do I, how do I make biblical decisions? Well, I want to make biblical decisions as they are informed by truth, correct? And the Holy Spirit points me to the Word of God, which is God's breathed truth. That's, that's undeniable. But, if you're like me, or any of us, Sometimes God's word is confusing, if we're willing to say that. Okay? Thankful for the Holy Spirit that illumines us, but there are still times when it's challenging. And that's why I mentioned on Sunday night, you cannot do the Christian walk without the community of faith within the church. This is why Timothy, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. Proverbs says that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Sometimes we say there is wisdom. That's not what that verse says. There is safety. It is not to guarantee that I can get 10 people in the room and we're all going to agree to do the right thing. We still might be wrong. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Within God's household, within God's family, there is truth. So let's say I come up to a decision in my life I need to make. Whether it be work-related, school-related, who am I going to marry? What am I going to do? How am I going to make that decision? Because, let's say, who am I going to marry for all the teenagers, right? It's not like it's going to be emblazoned in, you know, all of a sudden I'm reading the Bible and it says grace to you. And I'm like, there it is. got to marry grace, right? That's not, that's not how that works. So what do I do? How do I seek out truth? That's where you have to have a community of believers that you can speak with. And they can't all be your peers, by the way. They need to be people that that you can reach out to and lovingly guide you through prayer and counsel. You never were meant to find truth on your own, nor were you meant to be saved, to be planted somewhere in a monastery somewhere, as we mentioned Sunday night. Does that help answer that question? Paul? When we had the president of BMF here, I think what he shared with us is an example of the leading of the Spirit. Yes. People were after him to be, take that position, mm-hmm. and he put it off and put it off yep. until the Holy Spirit convinced him. Yep, that's what he said with EMM, the president. He was mentioning how the Spirit was leading through people in the church, calling him. By the way, friend, as we depart, that is your role, one of your wonderful roles within this assembly. And I can say this is personal testimony. I would not be a pastor today, or a preacher of any kind, if there weren't godly, even senior citizens in my church, especially the senior citizens in my church, who said, we think that you could do this. And they encouraged me that way. I, I am forever indebted to their encouraging me that path and down that path. So remember that the next time you bump into a snot-nosed kid in the playground somewhere. <laughs> think, you know, that God could use that kid some way, and maybe God could use me to encourage that kid. 
to do something. Maybe not just to pastor, but just to follow the Lord. And God can use that. It's an amazing thing. Let's close in prayer as we depart. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, may we be guided by it.